Uh, we're going to take our time working through chapter 6 through 8, or really 6 through 9, because as I've mentioned before, these are heavy, heavy subjects. And chapter 7 especially is a, is a very dip, difficult, very heavily debated uh, passage of Scripture as far as how it applies. And so we want to take our time and work through it and understand it. And uh, so we're only going to look at seven, I mean, I'm sorry, six verses today because uh, what Paul says here kind of sets up uh, the point that he's going to make through the rest of chapter seven. And if you don't get this analogy that he's about to make in chapters uh, seven, verses one through six, then it will be very hard to understand uh, the rest of the chapter. And so uh, with that being said, let's uh, all turn to Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and let's read that together, and then I will pray for us and we'll get into this text. So uh, Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word today, Lord, we come to a, a really what is a beautiful analogy. An analogy that shows us in a real life application the ways that the principles of the new life in the Spirit applies to us. And Lord, I pray for understanding. I pray for remembrance. I pray for Uh, the ability to recall things, uh, that we might start connecting some dots as far as how the law applies to the Christian and how we are to live in the Spirit. Father, bless me. Give me the words to say that I might build up these, your people. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, like I said, we're picking back up in our study of the book of Romans, and we are at the point where Paul has been trying to work with or answer a question that has he's come up with about how a believer is to live out a moral life. So he began at the with this line of argument uh, in chapter six by asking a question: Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So, in other words, if God receives us by grace through faith in Christ. What motivation do we then have for living a moral, holy life? So Paul gave a direct answer to this question in chapter 6 by saying that our identity and our nature 
and our will have changed when we turn to Christ. That Christ has changed our heart, that he has brought us out of our bondage in sin and our bondage to the way of Adam. And he has put us in Christ and given us his spirit so that we now are able to live for God. So we are now uh, no longer dead to sin, but we are alive to uh, we are dead to sin and alive to Christ now. Then he began to explain further by giving an analogy of slavery. And that's what we looked at last week, that we when we were outside of Christ, when we were unbelievers, we were slaves to sin. We couldn't help but do the will of Satan. And as Romans 6, 23 famously says, the wages of that sin is death. But now in Christ, we receive the gift of God's grace and the results of that, the benefits of that are eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So our text this morning from Romans chapter 7 Uh, Paul is going to give another analogy, an analogy from marriage. And he's going to use the analogy of two marriages as a way of explaining the motivations for the believer to live a holy life. And like I said, this analogy is pivotal to our understanding of the rest of of chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a very controversial, historically speaking, a very controversial and misused passage of Scripture. And so we want to get this just as firmly as we can before we get into the rest of chapter 7. So from the passage today, I want you to see two points. First, I want you to see the restrictions of a covenant. And second, the release of the Spirit. So first, let's consider the restrictions of a covenant from verses 1 through 3. So in these verses, Paul wants us to understand that we have the power and the desire to live for Christ, to live in sanctification, because we have a new covenant in Jesus Christ. To show that, he uses this analogy of two marriages— And in order to catch what he's saying here, we have to do a little bit of background work and deal with the ways that Paul uses two words. He's going to use repeatedly two words throughout the next two chapters that we've got to catch. The law is one word and the spirit is the other word. So when we hear the word law... I think we tend to imagine a moral code, right? A a list of, let's say, the Ten Commandments or a list of do's and don'ts that if we follow them and we, we obey them, that it has some sort of bearing on our relationship to God. Now, certainly morality is a large part of the law. It is a a major consideration of the Old Testament law and particularly the Ten Commandments. But that is not all that is going on with the law of Moses. It is not just a moral code. What, What Paul has in mind here when he uses the word law is a covenantal relationship between God and his people. So in Exodus chapter 24, verses 7 through 8, we find that Moses, he reads the law of the, of the covenant. He reads the Ten Commandments and, the, and the, all the laws that go with them from Exodus 20 through Exodus 24. He reads all of that to the people of Israel. And then they respond by saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
and we will be obedient. And then Moses takes a bull and he slits that bull's throat. He takes the blood from that bull and he sprinkles it on the people of Israel. And as he does this, he says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. So what you have pictured in Exodus 24 is a pledge of fidelity from the people of Israel and a pronouncement of the terms of the covenant. So, um, in other words, the law serves as the terms for the covenant that God has made with his people. It sets boundaries around the people. It's intended to constrain evil and to guide the people of God. Our laws in America do a very similar thing, right? We have laws that carry with them certain punishments, and the hope is not to do the punishment, right? The idea of capital punishment is if nobody murders, you never have to execute anybody. And the point is the severity of the punishment should have some constraining power over the evil that might happen as a result of that deed. So God has done the same thing now with Christ, but he doesn't do it through a new set of external laws. And he doesn't do it by pulling out the Old Testament laws and dusting them off and saying, okay, let's try this again. We're going to establish another covenant with these laws. It's not what he does. What does he do? He gives us something else. He gives us his spirit. So now in the new covenant, the spirit takes the place of the law. The Spirit is the sign and the seal, the terms, if you will, of the covenant that God has made between Himself and those who trust in His Son. So with that understood, let's consider this analogy that Paul gives here in Romans chapter 7. Paul says that we can think of the law and the Spirit like two different marriages, like two different marriage contracts. So let's say we know a woman who is married to a man, and let's just call this man Moses. And when the woman married Moses, the two had an understanding, right? They had, now, when anybody gets married, there are the public terms of the covenant that you take in this church or in some church when you come together and you say your vows in front of everybody. And everybody says in some form or another the same general vows, you know, a, a pledge to fidelity, a pledge to care for the other, a pledge to respect and honor. All of that stuff is, is in those public vows that you make with your husband or your wife. But there are also private Rules, private, you might call them house rules, right? That, so when you come together, you know, let's say the husband has some friends that aren't so great friends, right? And, and uh, they, they tend to influence him badly. And the wife says, look, if we're going to get married, you're going to need to give up those friendships. You're going to need to give up those friendships and cleave to me. That's a term of the contract, a term of the covenant that isn't in the vows that they say publicly, but uh, is part of the covenant nonetheless. 
when Leah and I got married, you know, before we got married, we, we went through all these things that we thought we were going to do. Like, you know, I was going to take out the trash and she was going to wash the dishes. And, and we, we agreed on all these different things that we were going to do. And none of that worked out like it was supposed to. But, uh, but we're still married, so that's good. But, but the, uh, we, you have these public vows that you give and these private agreements that you make that establish the relationship within a marriage. So this woman marries Moses with the, these, all these vows in mind, and they go along just fine, and they're happy in their marriage, and then Moses dies. And Paul points out, when Moses dies, the woman is free to marry another because all of those rules and all of those vows that, they, that she agreed to when she married Moses, they're now dead. They died with Moses. She wouldn't marry... Now imagine this. She wouldn't marry another man and then say, well, you know, Moses always expected me to have supper ready at 5.30. That would be ridiculous because she's not married to Moses anymore. She's married to another man. And she wouldn't say, we can't be intimate because, you know, uh, Moses, uh, I pledge faithfulness to Moses and I can't uh, be intimate with you because I am pledged to Moses. No, because Moses is dead, he's not living anymore, none of those rules apply to her new marriage. Now, she may make similar vows to, the same, to this new person that she's married to, but her vow, the person she is married to, the person to whom she has made the vows, has changed. And so because of that, she is free from the laws that govern the marriage to Moses, and now she is pledged to another. So with that analogy in mind, let's consider the release of the Spirit from verses 4 through 6. So in verse 4, Paul says that in the same way that that woman is free from the vows that she has made to Moses, through, we are now free from the burden of sin and the law because of the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus has put to death the burden of the law with all of its legal demands on us. And this was the only way that we could be truly obedient. If we were going to be truly obedient to God, if we were going to follow the, the Spirit's leading, we had to be set free from the old covenant demands. So you see, according to verse 5, the law had no power to make us holy to start with because it was something outside of us. But we already know from studying Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3 that it what we need, the problem we have, is not something outside of us. The problem isn't that we just don't have the right set of rules. And the problem isn't that if we just knew enough, and if we just studied enough, then we could be moral, good people. The problem isn't outside of us at all. The problem is inside of us. The problem is the heart. And so because our hearts are corrupt and set against God, it doesn't matter what the law says. 
Because everything that the law says, and as we'll study later in in chapter 7, all the law does is inflame our desires. It, it, It doesn't encourage us to sin, but because our heart is set against God, when we hear God doesn't want us to commit adultery, we say, Ooh, I wonder what adultery is like. That's the way our sinful heart works. And so in order for us to be obedient, we have to be set free from the law and bound to another. So Paul says in verse 6, We have now been released from the law so that we may serve God through the Spirit. So understand, Paul is not saying that Christians are free to do what they want but rather we are free to follow the will of the Spirit as He leads us because our hearts have been changed. Now we can actually be obedient to the true intent of the law because we have the Spirit of God and we know His will and are able to follow Him. So let me apply this idea. Let me give you a firm example of how this works in real life, and I want to show you that from the teaching of Jesus. So if you will, flip over to Matthew chapter 19. Now, I'm not going to read this for the sake of time, but I encourage you to go read the first eight or ten verses of Matthew chapter 19 in your Lord's Day reading and get the feel for what I'm saying here. But I want you to follow along as I explain this. So in Matthew chapter 19... The Pharisees come to Jesus with a very serious legal problem of the day, and that legal problem revolved around divorce. So in Jewish thought, there were two major positions on the issue of divorce. On the one hand, one camp believed that man could divorce his wife for any reason under the sun. She didn't have your meal ready at 5.30, divorce. She uh, went out with her friends on Friday night, divorce. It didn't matter what the reason was. If you didn't like it, you could get a divorce. On the other hand, in the other camp, they believed the exact opposite, that a man could not divorce his wife for any reason at all. And so the major opinion of the Jewish leadership was that you could get a divorce for pretty much any reason under the sun. And this was certainly how it was played out in the broader culture. So in an attempt to bog Jesus down, basically what they're doing is throwing this hard question at him and hoping to bog him down and and cause his disciples and his followers not to like him because of the way he he decided the issue. They want him to to bog him down in this hot, contested Debate, the Pharisees ask his opinion on this issue. So Jesus' answer, though, in verses 4 and in verse 8, give us the perfect examples of how the Spirit-filled righteousness works, how spirit, what Spirit-filled righteousness looks like. So to answer their question, Jesus takes them all the way back to the original creation of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And he reminds them of two spiritual truths related to marriage. First, marriage is a union where two people become one, where two become one flesh. 
So God's original intent for marriage was that it would be a soul-binding union between man and woman. Marriage is not an emotional high that one can quickly lose. And marriage is not just for sexual gratification. Marriage is a covenantal, spiritual union. Second, marriage was created by God, not by man. And the promises made between two people are before God first. So what God has joined together, as Jesus says, let no man put asunder. This is why, for example, a Christian wedding should always be done as a worship service and should always have God at the center of it, just as he is to be at the center of the marriage from then on. So the Pharisees don't like this answer very much. And they appeal to the Old Testament law to justify their position. And this is where I want you to catch the contrast between the law and the spirit. So notice they appeal to Moses. And they say from Deuteronomy chapter 24, you know, Jesus, Moses allowed us to issue a certificate of divorce. Moses, the law allows for divorce. So how is it that you can say that we shouldn't get divorced when the law itself allows for divorce? Now, here again, we see Jesus answer in a spirit filled righteousness, a way that is different from the law. He says that God provided the Old Testament law, notice there in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, the Old Testament law on divorce was given to constrain sin. It was given to put boundaries around men, quite literally, guys, okay? Because... In the Old Testament times, if you wanted to divorce your wife, you just got up out of the house and left. You didn't, you didn't have to say anything. You didn't have to do anything. You just got up out of the house and left. Now, you know the Old Testament history and how uh, people of those days viewed women. You can imagine if your husband just gets up and left, leaves, doesn't tell you anything, doesn't give you anything as a, a certificate that you are now divorced, what does that mean for you in society? It means anybody else that you go and live with, anybody else, anywhere else that you go, they all are assuming that you're a married woman. And so what this law does is it requires men to have to go to the Jewish leadership and give a reason for their divorce and get a certificate from the Jewish leadership. They have to go through a little, at least a little bit of embarrassment to go up in front of the Jewish leadership to get a certificate. And it protects the woman so that she is now set free to go on and to live her life. So this law was meant to create a boundary around the sin that men and women would naturally commit because of the hardness of their heart. But Jesus says that it was not a part of God's original intent for marriage. Rather, he says, because marriage is a public, God-ordained, spirit union, spiritual union, divorce is always wrong except in the case of adultery. So let me just say that 
I, I came up, I started my ministry in youth ministry back in uh, Lynette, Alabama, when I was in college. And having dealt with youth for a, a number of years, I know uh, most youth, when, when you start talking about morality, they want to know the boundaries, right? They want to know how far is too far. What is it that I can do and what is it that I can't do, right? And, and I think that's not just something that's defined uh, definite for youth. That's true of all of us. We want to know how far is too far. What can I do and what can't I do? What am I justified in doing and what am I not justified in doing? And the problem is there is no way to write enough laws to dictate every possible situation that could happen to you in your life. So what Jesus is saying here is, are there circumstances where divorce is warranted, where divorce is allowed? Yes. Is a divorce something that God commands? No. God's expectation for marriage is that the man and woman would live in faithful unity around Jesus Christ and serving Him and living for Him through the family uh, and through the efforts that they make towards each other and towards their children. That is the purpose. And having a Spirit-led attitude and view of that situation leads us to understand how best to live as Christians in our day and in our time. So you see in this example the difference between living by the letter of the law and living by the Spirit. The law constrains sin, but the Spirit brings us to understand the true way of obedience. The law says, give a tenth of all you have. And so people get into exact measures of what a tenth is. And they say, well, I can't give any more because the law says give a tenth. Or I better make sure I give a tenth. And that's all I care about is giving a tenth. But the Spirit says to give abundantly out of a glad heart. So Jesus looks at the woman who gives her last two pence. And she, he says she has given all she has. She has done the right thing. The law says to consecrate the Sabbath. So people say, well, I better make sure I'm there at church on Sunday, but I can live like I want to live the rest of the week, and I can do what I want to do the rest of the week, but I, I keep the Sabbath, brother. But the Spirit says that every day is to be lived as unto the Lord. The law says to take an eye for an eye and to do justice to your enemy, but the Spirit says to love your enemies. The law can only tell us what to do in certain cases, but it cannot change our hearts to gladly obey. But God, through His Spirit, gives us willing hearts to obey Him. So may we leave this place ready to live for Christ because He has given us a new and better way of righteousness through His Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit that resides in us through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would not live according to the old code, seeking to live just by rules and regulations and just 
just do the minimum of what we're expected, but rather we would see through spiritual eyes to the truth behind the law, the truth that you intended from all of creation. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to live according to your uh, spirit and to be sensitive to his leadership as we seek to live for him. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.